to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Well, hey there, lovely listener. Season 3 is having a bit of an intermission right now, and while the Explorers might seem quite quiet, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. The creative endeavor that's currently occupying most of my time is my debut novel. That's right, I have a novel coming out in 2023. It's called Nightbirds, and it's full of a fantastical world very much inspired by history and a bunch of powerful, magical girls. I'll have a lot more to tell you about the book and my writing life in the new year. But for now, know that I'm deep into revising this story of mine, which is leaving less time than I'd like to hop into the booth and finish season three. I'm really excited about our episodes to come, and you know I never want to give you less than my best, so you won't be getting more Tudor-tastic episodes until February. But never fear, I have a special treat for you. In the lead-up to Christmas, I'm releasing three bonus episodes that until now have only been available to patrons of the show. Consider it my present to you, my wonderful listeners. Thank you for making me part of your lives in 2021. Now, grab your favorite sparkly accessory and let's go traveling. This episode is brought to you by my patrons, and I'm going to thank some of them now. My newest pirate queens, Jennifer, Michelle, and Jessica. My newest lady president, Charlotte. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Bethany, Bronwyn, Elizabeth, Grace, Kara, Michelle, Monique, Nuria, Rebecca, Sarah, Tanya, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian. My newest adventuresses, Joe Marie, Sophie, and Emily, and Anna, Carlos, Helena, Iris. Jessica R., Amber, Kelly, Phil, Sophie, Stephanie C., and Stephanie F. My newest fearsome warrior queens, Kate and June, as well as Lori and Avery. To my newest imperial empress, Samara, I hope you have a good day out in the fields, as well as Katie and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the lovely, unbeatable Courtney's. Patrons really help me keep the show going, but they also get access to exclusive bonuses like this one, as well as Q&As, sneak peeks, interviews with guests, early access to all of my episodes, cool contests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. Even if you're not all that into clothes, they're the perfect vehicle for going time-traveling through history. You can't really understand what a woman's life might have been like in any time and place until you've walked around in her hoop skirt or her stola or her robe a la Francois, at least in your imagination. And the fashion of a particular day reflects cultural values and attitudes that can tell us a lot about a woman's existence. Today, we're tracing the history of one of my very favorite and most sparkly accessories. Whether it's sewing them onto my bathing suit for my summer camp swimming show, gluing them onto a pair of old sneakers, or drunkenly pasting them to my temples in a college dorm bathroom, I love me some sequins. Sure, they're itchy and occasionally heavy, but they always brighten a room. It's hard to feel anything but celebratory when you're sparkling like a big ol' mirror ball. The shiny plastic disc you're picturing is a relatively new invention. 
But sequins have a surprisingly long and interesting history that takes us all the way back to the ancient world. We've found evidence of sequins all over the globe. Pakistan, Peru, Egypt. And of course, sequins aren't just for the ladies in any time period. They're for everyone, as evidenced by Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Fashion icon that he was, he made sure that his tomb was stuffed with them. When his resting place was discovered in 1922, they found gold sequin-like discs sewn onto one of his garments, ensuring he continued to glitter hard in the afterlife. These sequins, like many others from the ancient world, were bits of gold hammered into thin circles, then pierced through the center to make them easy to attach to clothes. Many of Tut's were colored with iron deposits, made to look red and purple. Others were sewn on in a pattern to look like flowers. A man ahead of his time. These glittery accents weren't just about looking magnificent. They served as a symbol of status, since only the wealthy could afford to wear such precious metals. They were spiritual, too. There's evidence to suggest that their reflective shine was meant to ward off evil spirits. Some of these metal discs with holes in the middle weren't just sequins, but coins sewn in profusion onto armor. Ever wonder how coins ended up with holes in the middle? This is one of the reasons why. Sewn onto a leather vest worn into battle, they served several functions. They offered extra protection, reflected light at the enemy, and signaled status both to friend and foe. And of course, no one can steal your change, nor can you lose it if it's literally sewn onto your person. So that's handy. Warriors from all over the world and different eras have included sequins in their battle gear. In 14th century South America, chiefs wore gold sequins onto the battlefield. And though it's not exactly sequins, we know that ancient warriors were fond of scale armor. Leather outfits covered with overlapping bits of bronze or iron meant to look like a fish's scales. The Scythian warrior women we covered were very fond of them, as they offered protection from spears and other pointy objects. If you have a good look at a medieval example of scale armor, it doesn't look all that different from the red sequin skirt I have in my closet. Except, you know, it's probably better at saving you from an arrow through the back. Shiny war vests aside, it's hard to separate sequins from wealth and extravagance. Though some might consider them cheap and tacky today, historically they were anything but. The Arabic word sika, which we get the word sequin from, means coin or minting dye. In 13th century Venice, gold coins were known as zecchino, from zecca, the word for mint. They had their debut in 1284 and hung around until Napoleon conquered Venice in 1797. And they often featured in clothing, sewn in a lady's headdress or vest as a kind of anti-theft strategy. The French pronounce zecchino as sequin, so while the coins went out as currency, they stuck as a means of describing a decorative metal disc. Variations of Sika and Zacchino were used in Europe and the Middle East for centuries, but in England, they weren't called sequins, but spangles. If that isn't a fun alternative, then I don't know what is. It turns out that spangles and sequins aren't exactly interchangeable. They were usually made by twisting a very thin metal wire around a narrow rod, forming a tight spiral, which was then cut so that it fell apart in a whole lot of tiny C-shapes. Those were hammered flat, leaving a teeny tiny gap in the C. Here's another fun sequin fact. 
Sometime in the 1480s, artist, inventor, and all-around all-star Leonardo da Vinci sketched out an idea for a machine that would punch small discs out of a metal sheet. Was this Renaissance man trying to find a new way to gussy up his outfits? Or the Gomorrah dresses the ladies of the day were sporting? We don't really know, but I sure hope so. We do know that people in his era were definitely rocking sequins. The Sforza family of Milan, who were Leonardo's patrons, wore sequins for sure, both men and women. Sequins were made by artisans who specialized in Ars Magiatarum, or the art of sequins. Yep, they actually had a word for it. While they were supposed to be gilded or made of silver, the enterprising were always trying to find a cheaper way to go. In 1482, the Milanese Goldsmiths Guild denounced all craftsmen who would dare hurt the city's reputation by producing sequins made from copper and brass. Horrors! There was even a punishment for making these knockoffs. Bootleg sparkle makers, beware. As long as sequins and spangles have been created, we know that men and women both have been getting tailors to stitch them onto their clothes. Who doesn't want to shine their way across a room? In the early 1600s, for example, sparkly accents were popular for women of court, meant to catch the sun and glimmer every time they moved. As you'll see from the royal pair of sequin gloves I put in the show notes, they were gloriously flashy, and nothing says I'm fancy like round discs that reflect light. We see them in art, too, like the Madonna and Child mixed-medium piece from 1495. Mary's dress is made of hundreds of hand-stitched sequins. Get it, Mary? They continue to be popular through the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Industrial Revolution-era innovations in technology meant that sequins became much easier to make, and the Victorians loved them. A 1910 ad from the Auckland Star in New Zealand advertises lace with a net of both sequins and spangles. Two for one! They see a real resurgence, though, after the discovery of Tut's tomb in the 1920s. Flappers took the whole sequence thing and really ran with it. Still reeling from the First World War, ladies were looking for a lighter, simpler, and freer kind of dress. A sheath could be made a whole lot more economically than the fussy styles from the era before. But while simple was great for the day, ladies wanted something at night that would really sparkle in the dance halls and speakeasies. Enter beadwork, embroidery, and, of course, lots of sequins. Ladies with money tended to have a tailor make them, as the sequins were all sewn on by hand. A pattern was first printed or drawn onto the fabric, stretched across a tambour frame. Sequins were attached before the dress was put together, sewn on with thread and a special kind of tambour hook. Many girls made their own sequin dresses at home, sewing them lovingly onto a thin layer of tulle. Most of these were made of metal. Imagine, if you will, doing the Lindy Hop while wearing 500 metal sequins. At least it would keep your gauzy dress from flying up. Then, in the 1930s, we discovered a process for electroplating gelatin, which meant that we could make shiny metal discs out of that. But here's the problem with sequins made of jello. They melt. If you happen to get caught in the rain, say, or your date gets a little handsy while you do the Charleston, he's going to leave a telltale sequinless stain. Oh my. So, not so practical. But at least it gave us something we could use to decorate our cupcakes. Then came a guy named Herbert Lieberman, who worked with Eastman Kodak, a company that was using acetate in its film stock, and came up with the acetate sequin. They were very pretty, but fragile. They were prone to crack right in half like glass. Some 20 years later, in the 1950s, a guy invented mylar, 
which surrounded the plastic-colored sequin and made it safe for the washing machine. Then came vinyl plastic, which is what we use today. Not quite as shiny as the original, but pretty good nonetheless. And there you have it, a little history of our favorite light-reflecting accessory. Next time you pick up that tastefully glittery clutch or obscenely sparkly dress, rock it proudly, knowing how many women have dazzled the world in them before. Sequins might seem trivial, but I think they make us happy, and they make other people happy too. And they announce our presence in the world with many tiny beams of liquid light. If nothing else, they give us ladies permission to sparkle. See you later! Thanks for listening. If you liked this bonus, you may want to consider becoming a patron of the show. Your few dollars a month go an incredibly long way to helping me to keep making the show. You'll find dozens of bonus episodes over on the Explores Patreon about everything from life for women in ancient Persia to a deep dive into the history of high heels. There are other ways to support the show, too. Tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, talk about it on social media, or go explore my website, theexploresspodcast.com. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Explores for my theme music and logo. And thanks to you, my fantastic, sparkly listeners. Listeners.